Well, we call this Passion Week. Historically, Passion Week is supposed to be a reliving of the events that led up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. We're supposed to, as Christians, place ourselves into the drama of what's going on in these chapters here in the Bible, here in the latter chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you have a good study Bible, like the ESV study Bible, uh, they'll have a, a chart or something like that that'll show you which parts of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John that you can read to see what's going on in this week. I hope you're doing something like that. And so I, I want to, in this week, focus on Matthew 26 and 27. Let me tell you where we're going tonight and then Good Friday, and then on Easter Sunday. I'll start by mentioning Good Friday, since it's kind of like the hub for what we're um, doing as we look at these two chapters together. On Good Friday, 6.30 p.m., we're going to talk about 20 different oddities or peculiarities that you can find in Matthew 26 and 27. Surprising things, things you would not have put in there if you were making this stuff up. Then on Easter Sunday, three services, 7.39 and 10.45, we're going to focus on one of those oddities, perhaps the biggest oddity, the, the thing that's most peculiar in Matthew 26 and 27, that shortly after Jesus died, some dead saints were raised, they walked out of their tombs, and they eventually showed themselves to many in Jerusalem. How many of you have read that before and you went, what? Are you kidding? Really? That really happened? And then you wondered whether it looked like zombies or not? I mean, did God fix their bodies too? The answer is yes. So we'll talk about that peculiar passage on Easter Sunday. Um, in part, that passage, because it's a perplexing passage. And one, I think we might be, tempt- we might be tempted to be embarrassed by. And I think that that's good reason to tackle it on Easter Sunday. So pray for my prep for that passage on Easter Sunday because it is a tough one and it's a unique context with so many visitors. Maybe you'll invite a friend using that, those two verses, verse 56 and verse 57 of Matthew 27 for Easter Sunday. Tonight I want to focus on another of these oddities. This one, more well-known and certainly more relatable, where Peter denied his Lord three times. So turn to Matthew 26, and we'll start with a chunk here where Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Verse 30, Matthew 26, starting in verse 30, God's word says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then look over at verse 69 where what Jesus predicted comes to reality. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, 
You also were with that Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And he went out to the entrance. Another servant girl there saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man, he said. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Well, what can we say about this interesting story? Recorded in all four Gospels, recorded at a pretty good length in all four Gospels. Not always the case in the stories of the New Testament. I think we can see five things here. First, Peter was boastfully presumptuous. Peter was boastfully presumptuous. In verse 33, back there, remember, Jesus predicted that they'll fall away. Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter said, though everyone falls away, I won't. I will never fall away. Then two verses later, even after Jesus repeats himself, something you shouldn't have to make Jesus do, Peter says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I think we can see here that pride is not strength. Pride does not really result in any kind of strength or any kind of power, any kind of result. It's fake strength. It looks strong temporarily. We shouldn't boast. We shouldn't be presumptuous. Christians should say, like Paul, except for the grace of God, what? There go I. Peter was boastfully presumptuous. Secondly, Peter was cautious and quiet. We didn't read it, but in between these two passages that we read, look at verse 58. We see just a hint here from the writer Matthew. He says, And Peter was following him at a distance, keeping his distance. Now, Jesus has been arrested. Peter follows, but he follows at a distance. He's already guarding himself, he's already guarding his reputation with Jesus, trying, in a sense, to distance himself from Jesus. And then look at verse 59 and 60 there. The Jewish leaders are seeking testimony against Jesus. It says, verse 59, they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, and then at last two came forward. Two witnesses against Jesus. They're looking for witnesses. They have put out sort of a, a sheet, sort of an announcement here, right? A, a welcome mat, Anyone got anything on Jesus? Any, anyone ready to testify about Jesus? Of course, they're looking for negative testimony, even if it's faked testimony. But why didn't Peter 
or the other disciples testify. It really is interesting what's not said here, but I think Matthew's implying. They're looking for testimony. They're asking for testimony. They're looking for someone to speak about Jesus. And no one comes forward to defend Jesus. Peter was cautious, following him at a distance, and he was quiet when they called for witnesses. Third, we see that Peter was bold and persistent with his denial. He was bold and persistent in his denial. Now, it was promised, promised more than once by by Jesus twice. It was promised that Peter would deny the Lord. Now, don't you, don't you assume, if you're in Peter's shoes, in his sandals, that, that you're going to just really dig in here and not deny the Lord if you've been told you're going to deny the Lord? Have you ever been told, oh, I bet you're going to do that again. I bet you would do it in a week. And you just got a challenge thrown down, didn't you? Oh, yeah? I wasn't motivated before, but I am now. You'd think that Peter has some kind of resolve within him, an extra kind of resolve when it's predicted that he'll deny the Lord. And then we see in this first denial, verse 69, who is it that first challenged him? A servant girl. Now, this isn't someone, especially in first century times, that can get you in trouble. It's a girl, and she's a servant. Now, I know I said She's a girl, and that sounded misogynistic. But you've got to remember, it's written in first century times. This is a first century book. And so it captures some of the cultural dynamics that are going on. Not least that a, a woman often wouldn't be called upon to give testimony. She's a servant girl. Implies that she's even young. She's not, she's not an adult woman. She's a girl. She's not a free girl. She's a servant girl. Humanly speaking... Pragmatically speaking, Peter has nothing to fear here. She can say, aren't you with Jesus? And he says, yep, and goes about his business. Unless she tells someone else. But you see Peter hedging his bet, protecting himself in an extra way by denying the Lord Jesus even to her. Then there's a second denial. Another servant girl pointed him out to others in verse 71. It gets more serious because there's a crowd that's possibly getting involved. She points him out to others. Now multiple people are involved. And this time he denies it with an oath. Verse 72. He makes an oath. It'd be like saying, I swear I don't know him. So though the second denial, the threat is greater So the denial is also greater. It's also important to see that so far, with this second denial, it probably didn't happen immediately after the first. It's easy because these are short words, right? This is a small paragraph of Peter's denials here. It could be read like this is happening quickly. Like it's all very quick. And before he knows it, he's denied the Lord three times in a matter of two minutes and then says, what happened? But Matthew's given us some hints here that this is a little bit more spread out than that. In verse 71, after the first denial, it says, he went out to the entrance. He's not just sort of 
I don't know, giving a chronology here. It's not just about historical accuracy that he records that. He's letting us know that 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 temptation and denial was done with and he went someplace else. There's a time sort of parentheses there. And in verse 73, it's even more explicit. It says, and after a little while. So this wasn't a few second lapse of discernment and then boom, it's done. He actually had time to think to get his discernment bearings back in place. And he denies the Lord more vehemently with an oath. And then a third denial. Verse 74, it says, he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear. Now, I heard some sermon as a kid that he cussed. It says that he swore. It doesn't mean that he cussed. It's, it's not like saying, you know, I don't know him. Darn it, I don't know him, except he didn't say darn it. It's not like that. It's instead, he is saying, God, curse me if I'm lying about this. He began to make not just an oath, but now to swear that it's, that it's not so, that he knew Jesus. In verse 74, he just makes it explicit. I do not know the man. Calling him the man. You see how it's depersonified? It's not, I do not know Jesus. I do not know him. I do not know the man. He's saying both that he doesn't know the man. And if he did, he wouldn't like him. And he doesn't know or believe his message. Now we can't minimize the heinousness of Peter's sin here. We can't chalk this up to some sort of everyday variety of denial. That word denial is a scary one in scripture. Perhaps Peter knew these words in Matthew 10 pretty well. Verse 32, where Jesus said, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So when Peter denies the Lord here in Matthew 26, it's not that he was being shy. And we've all been shy. It's not that he wasn't clear about what was going on. It's not that he was trying to be vague or he skirted around something. It wasn't that he was denying the Lord by implication. Like in a sense all of our sin does. Any sin we could say is in a sense a denial of the Lord. Denial of his lordship. Denial that he's king. Denial that he has said in his words and not do that and to do this. That's not what Peter's doing. He actually denied him. And by his third denial, it's a vehement denial. In fact, in Matthew's account here, that third denial is almost a double denial. It's almost like he did more than three. But fourth, we see that Peter genuinely repented. Those wonderful words at the end of verse 75 say, and he went out, and wept bitterly. Sin, even heinous sin, is not the same thing as apostasy. Apostasy is a theological word. It's in the Bible. 
and it's used by Christians in the church to talk about those who at one time affirmed Christ, followed Christ, said they believed in Christ, said that their hearts had been made new, that their sins were forgiven, that they believed they were going to heaven, and then eventually, either by word or by actions, deny it. It's not that they literally fell away, that they were saved, and then now they're not. It's that from a human perspective, it looks like they fell away. They fell away from their confession. So we could put it like this. There are a few things that are true in the Bible. We mark these down. There are enough Bible verses that it's like building a puzzle. And some pieces are an eyeball. And you know where that goes. Or this one is clearly right top corner. And you know where it goes. Well, there are certain, certain things we can put down on our puzzle of God's, God's word and work around them. Here are a few things to put down. True Christians do sin and sometimes badly. First John says if we say that we don't sin, we make God a liar. True Christians do sin and sometimes badly. Another thing we see in the Bible, another puzzle piece we can plop down and work around is There are some who deceive themselves and others that they have truly believed when they never really have. And most likely will eventually demonstrate that, again, either by their words or by their actions. This is what we call apostasy. 1 John 2.19, couldn't be clearer about it. They went out from us, they left us, they deserted us, they left what we believe and who we are... They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, truly of us, they were of us for a time in a sense, humanly speaking. As far as church goes, they were of us. But if they had been really of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. 1 John 2.19 says, that's apostasy. We can put that down. It's a Bible doctrine. We, We build around that. Another thing we can plop down on our puzzle of God's word is that true Christians eventually turn back or God takes them out of this world with disciplinary death and only a few passages that talk about that but 1 Corinthians 11 where the Corinthians were messing with the Lord's Supper getting drunk during the Lord's Supper celebrating their richness and the economic distinctions in their church Paul says some are dead because of this. 1 John 5 talks about a sin which is unto death. It's kind of confusing, except that it seems like there is some category for a disciplinary death where the Lord intervenes and takes someone home before they finally desert it, before they go worse and worse. But Apart from that category, true Christians eventually turn back. True Christians return with repentance. True Christians do not give up on repentance. They do not give up on believing. So Martin Luther's 95 theses, we probably have all heard about those, even if you're not a Christian. The first of the 95 theses, which he nailed to the Wittenberg door in October 1517, the first was... The whole of the Christian life should be one of repentance. True Christians eventually turn back. 
And Peter did. So there's a big difference between, say, Judas and Peter. Judas betrayed Jesus. We could look at that passage. We won't. Judas, Judas turned him in. And yes, afterward he had remorse, but not repentance. So scripture calls him the son of perdition. That means son of judgment. Son of damnation. He's an example of apostasy. But Peter, though he denied the Lord three times, repented. He's an example of godly repentance. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 7, 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Oh, there's a grief that's in the world. There's a Judas kind of grief. And it actually led to his death. His suicide. Thomas Cramer, you might know of him from the 16th century. He was a a martyr of the Protestant movement in England. So there in Oxford, England today, you can find a spot where the three Oxford martyrs were, were burned. Three, Ridley, Latimer, and Cranmer, were to be burned at the same time. Cranmer chickened out. He put it in writing. He wrote a lengthy recantation of what we believe to be the gospel. The faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, gospel. And his friends, Ridley and Latimer, were burned at the stake there on High Street in Oxford while he was under imprisonment in a nearby church. He, like Peter, later repented. Though he recanted, he later repented. And when they said, well, you got to be burned, right? You're going to be burned just like your friends. You do realize that, right? If you recant your recantation, you'll be burned at the stake. And he said that he would gladly put the hand that signed the recantation into the fire first. He repented. What we see in Thomas Cramer's repentance and Peter's repentance, or back in the Old Testament, David's repentance, is that our hope doesn't rest on our consistency. It doesn't rest on the consistency of our confession. Our hope doesn't rest on the regularity of our repentance or the passion of our repentance. Maybe you're good at whipping up some repentive tears. You're not still saved because you're good at that. You're still saved because of Christ. Our hope rests only on Christ. Peter repented. And fifth, Peter was wonderfully restored. There are a few passages that show us this. One was actually, we already read, and it was a prediction. Oh, we didn't already read it. I'm sorry, it's in Luke's account of this. In Luke 22, listen to this. When Jesus is foretelling Peter's denial, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, prayed that your faith may not fail. Was Jesus' prayer request answered? Yes. His faith finally did not fail. And Jesus says this, and when you have turned again, 
when you've repented, when you've turned back after you've denied me, strengthen your brothers. Doesn't say when you've turned back, do penance. Doesn't say when you've turned back, keep feeling bad for six more years. When you've turned back, get to work. Care for others. In John 21, we see another passage of how Peter was fully restored and wonderfully restored. John 21, verse 15, listen to this. It says, when they had finished breakfast, this is after the resurrection, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Remember, strengthen your brothers. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, feed my sheep. I'm sorry, Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Then he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three confessions in response to Peter's three denials. Then Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old... You will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. This he said to indicate to Peter, your faith will remain. You will keep confessing. And you will keep confessing to your death. You will die for me, Peter, and you will not be ashamed. Remember that day, Peter, when you said, though no one else stands with you, I'll stand with you. Even if it means I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus is saying, well, that, that isn't, it wasn't totally true, Peter, but I'll make it true in the end. Another passage that shows that Peter was wonderfully restored is Acts 2. Where there, you know, the miraculous happens. Tongues of fire come down on the disciples and the crowd asks, what in the world is going on? The crowd is upset. And who stands up and boldly proclaims what's going on? Peter. Peter. Peter boldly preaches and 3,000 were converted. Oh, one other passage. If you know Peter's first letter, also known as 1 Peter, well, you know that the biggest theme of that book is what? Carlos, what is it? Suffering. Carlos preached on it on Sunday. Suffering. Suffering not just in general, though that's there, but oftentimes Peter's talking about suffering for godliness, suffering for Christ, suffering through testimony. 
He writes a whole book saying, gird up your loins, get ready for suffering, be strong. Don't be surprised by the fiery trial that comes upon you. Don't be shaken like I was. He's wonderfully restored. Let me just ask a couple of questions before we partake of the Lord's Supper tonight. I wonder, are you growing proud and presumptuous like Peter? I mean, are you caring about who's ahead? You know, in the Luke 22 passage, right after Jesus tells them, you're going to deny me, they start fighting about who's greatest in the kingdom. Give me a break. And yet we do it in the church all the time, don't we? Who's getting more of this? Who's getting more of that? How come he was asked to do this? How come I haven't yet been asked to do that? Is prominence an issue for you? Are you growing proud and presumptuous? Maybe in general, maybe you never say, except for the grace of God, there go I. I could do that. I could do that sin. Maybe instead it's just tisk, tisk, tisk. You can't believe those sinners do that. You can't believe that guy did that. What do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, where is boasting? What gift have you, have you exercised in the Christian life that is, that is not a gift? What fruit is there because you plopped it out? He does it. Don't grow proud. Don't be presumptuous. Don't carry, don't concern yourself about who's ahead. Or another question would be, are you following him at a distance like Peter was? Are there things of which you're a little ashamed? I remember as a kid being ashamed that we had Bibles in our house or Bible verse paintings or mom gave me a, you know, a poster of someone doing a really cool ski jump and it said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Like back scratches. So you're in this awkward position, right? Thanks, Mom. I'm a Christian. Yeah, we go to church. <laughs> I like that. Your friend comes in and you say, I just really like the skiing picture. Who cares about the Bible verse? Are you ashamed of our Lord in any way whatsoever? Are you growing in more confidence in him, more boldness for him? Are you saying more and more like Paul in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are there parts of the Christian life in which you're just a little bit ashamed? That's why I thought we would go to that seemingly weird passage in Matthew 27 this Sunday. When Jesus died, a bunch of people came out of their graves and went into town and showed themselves. Yep, we believe that. And we think that's what's needed. Resurrection. It's that bad. We think he really rose. And we think that's what will happen to us in the end. That we'll be raised. Do you sometimes laugh at jokes about Christians? Maybe your actions betray you. There are all kinds of verses that talk about this word deny 
in the context of actions that indicate that we deny. Like Titus 1.16, that some claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. Or 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone doesn't provide for his house, he's denied the faith. He's worse than an unbeliever. Or maybe you have denied him. Friend, turn back to him. Turn back to him. Run to him. Drop to your knees tonight and weep bitterly. Run to his mercy. How unthinkably merciful is our Savior in this passage. How powerfully persistent is his love and his grace. Psalm 118 tells us because of this to give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, let Peter say, you say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let all those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love Endures forever. Out of my distress, the psalmist says, I called on the Lord. And he answered me and he set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can servant girls do to me? What can the crowd do to me? What, what can Pilate do to me? What can bosses do to me? What can mom or dad do to me? I will not fear. The Lord is on my side. The Lord is on my side. And he is my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Or anything else. Brothers and sisters, trust in the Lord. And do not deny him.